Welcome back to the South African Border Wars podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 9, and we're at the point where the Angolan Civil War starts, 1975. First, a little bit of post-colonial politics. By 1974, desertions from the Portuguese military had numbered 25,000. The youngsters of that country were unwilling to fight non-winnable colonial wars in Africa. We heard in the previous episode about what happened during the Carnation Revolution and how expats living in Africa were taken off guard by that coup. In the end, almost 800,000 Portuguese men and women served in the army in Africa, starting around 1959, ending in 1974. That's an extremely large group asked to fight in a foreign country for an army that had been warped by a right-wing dictatorship, led first by Antonio de la Vera Salazar and then Marcelo Catania. Maputo is an 11-hour flight from Lisbon. You can imagine young Portuguese troops arriving in Mozambique in the early 1970s being told to fight against Fulimo and wondering why. It wasn't their country. It wasn't their continent. And when the military coup toppled the right-wing dictatorship in Lisbon in April 1974, the wheels came off their former colonies fairly rapidly because of the rush to the exit. Portugal's African administration had always been about cheap labour, which meant ensuring the population was largely uneducated. The ultimate power was based in Lisbon, similar to the Southwest African experience where the ultimate power lay in Pretoria. In theory, Angola was immensely wealthy with its oil and other resources. The practice of plundering these resources started by the Portuguese would be followed up during the civil war by the corrupt MPLA government. The Dos Santos family would eventually launder billions of dollars after the Portuguese departed and the civil war sputtered to its end. But that's another story. Portuguese rule in Angola was harsh. Forced labor was exacted. Public beatings and even executions were the norm. The country's roads had been built using forced labor, for example, and the secret police in Angola was fearful. Their methods at times looked more like the Nazis or Iran's Sabak during the rule of the Shah. Their harsh colonial rule, then the battles against the independence movements like the MPLA, UNITA and the FNLA, and the secret police techniques did not bode well for expats in a post-colonial situation. There was going to be a terrible revenge, and thousands of refugees would flood into South Africa from both Mozambique and Angola. When the military coup in Lisbon began, South Africans, along with most of the world, were surprised. But the SADF military attaché in Luanda, Brigadier Willem van der Waals, had written that it was not unexpected. One of the officers involved in that coup was General Francisco de la Costa Gomes, who was destined to become Portugal's second post-coup president. Gomes had already told van der Waals that Angola would slide into civil war pretty rapidly after the Carnation Revolution, and that's precisely what happened. At first, though, there was hope. Holden Roberta of the FNLA, Augustino Neto of MPLA, and Jonas Avimba of UNITA met in Bakuvu in Zaire in June 1974 and agreed that they'd negotiate with Lisbon as a single entity. They met again in Mombasa in Kenya on the 5th of January 1975 and agreed to stop fighting and discuss broad constitutional arrangements with the Portuguese. The third time they came together was 10 days later in Portugal, where the three leaders signed what became known as the Alvor Agreement on the 15th of January 1975. All parties agreed that the first elections would be held in October 1975, leading to the installation of a new government on the 11th of November of the same year. Between January and November 1975, all parties were supposed to run the country as part of a transitional government. That would be overseen by a prime ministerial council headed up by the Portuguese High Commissioner, Admiral Rosa Coutinho. 
The major problem with this is that Admiral Rosa Coutinho was known as the Red Admiral because of his links to Havana and his left-leaning sympathies. With the Cubans hard at work in the background, along with the Russians, this was not going to be an ideal arrangement. It was about trust. All three parties were supposed to share the premiership of the Prime Ministerial Council on a rotating basis until elections, but two of the three had no interest in sharing whatsoever. There are many allegations about this time. Fidel Castro, for example, told the Bulgarians in private that the MPLA thought the joint administration was a mistake. By July 1975, MPLA leader Augustino Neto had told the Soviet ambassador in Luanda that the process was, in his words, a favorable opportunity for reactionary forces in the country, which in turn was leading to a further intensification of political, social and economic conflicts. There's no doubt he was correct. The FNLA, for example, was led by a man who was quite obviously power-hungry and had no intentions of honoring the agreement. Holden Roberto's men then embarked on aggressive actions in the north of the country, and his goal was pretty simple. Seize power, total power. The South Africans initially tried to provide the Roberto with logistic and military support, then changed their mind. The MPLA was equally disinterested in sharing with others. Its ideology is rooted in Marxist single-party narrative, full of us and them, and they were all capitalist stooges. Meanwhile, back in South Africa, the growing chaos was being monitored with significant concern. The Pretoria government had taken a momentous decision to actively recruit black soldiers into the SA Defence Force, and by June 1975, 300 had volunteered. The first coloured officers had also begun their training, and the integration of the SA Defence Force was now underway. This had a curious effect on the culture of the standing army, as it was a contradiction. The Nationalist Party, which was enforcing apartheid and the separation of races, was now somehow actively integrating its army. Hardliners in the country wanted the army to remain whites only. Some went further and wanted the army to be exclusively Afrikaner, believing that English speakers would sell out under pressure. Within a few years, the most important units in the Defence Force, though, were those with mixed troops, English, Afrikaans, white and black. By June 1974, matters in Southwest sharpened the SA Defence Force point of view regarding the threat posed by SWAPO. That was the month that more than 100 SWAPO members, mainly Ovambos, had infiltrated the country from across the Angolan border. The Zambian government had also reacted to growing friction along that border, and by June 1974 it issued a statement condemning what it called South Africa's uncalled for wanton aggression and demanded the withdrawal of the SADF from Southwest Africa. There were rumbles of disaffection in South Africa's cities. Journalists began writing about the signs of a growing border war, and Zambia's comments had not helped matters. The death of the first SADF member on the border, Lieutenant Freddie Zeely, focused their minds even though the details had been kept hidden from the public. Remember, last episode we heard how he had died inside Angola, but the Defence Force merely mentioned he had died on the border. Most South Africans had no idea that the next phase of this war was about to begin. The Alvor Agreement was signed on January 15, 1975. It was a grand document outlining the process of Angolan democratization. The reality was the three main parties were already at war. FNLA leader Holden Roberto despised MPLA leader Augustino Neto and wanted sole power. Unita's Jonas Savimbi appeared to be the odd one out, and the Americans and South Africans naturally gravitated to him. 
Pretoria was cautious, however. It had already burned its fingers supporting Roberto, who was a Congo nationalist and a warmonger, and had repeatedly lied about his plans. Moscow was now fully behind the MPLA, and by the signing of the Alvo Declaration, Cubans had already been sent to Angola to help with military matters. In February 1975, senior MPLA leader Daniel Chipenda then suddenly left the movement and expressed an interest in joining the FNLA, accompanied by 2,000 of the MPLA's best troops who were personally loyal to him. Fighting was now reported in the capital and in the larger towns as the FNLA, MPLA and UNITA began exchanging fire. Chipenda's move was to have long-lasting consequences for both Angola and Southwest Africa. The fighting for Luanda was particularly vicious, the most strategic point as the largest city and the best harbour, and the MPLA's seat of power. By mid-May 1975, the civil war had laid waste to much of the port city, food was running out, and law and order had crumbled. The number of Cuban instructors and advisers increased, reaching at least 250 by the end of May 1975. The MPLA's military wing, the People's Armed Forces for the Liberation of Angola, or FAPLA for short, was being trained in conventional warfare by these advisers. Their heavy weapons and air power began to grow, while opposing them, UNITA and the FNLA had light weapons and were non-conventional fighters, who were in essence fighting a conventional war at this stage. Angola had begun its slide into a dark place in earnest. By July, the MPLA had thrown UNITA and the FNLA out of Luanda and now controlled many towns and villages between the capital and the southwest African border, but not all. Jonas Savimbi of UNITA set up his centre of operations in the central Angolan town of Silva Porto on the border with Zaire. He began to strengthen his grip in the southeastern region. Importantly, he was also reaching out to the Americans and South Africans for support. Holden Roberto of the FNLA was holed up at Abris, a short distance from Luanda, and at that moment was regarded as the biggest threat to the MPLA. A short while later, Chipenda's small army shifted position down to the southern town of Sarpapinto, which is now known as Menong. Swapo realized this was a perfect moment and increased their infiltration into southwest Africa, into Ovambaland, increasing their acts of intimidation and at times murder. They would then melt back over the border, exploiting the destabilized situation. Compounding this with a number of refugees streaming across the border into southwest Africa, these refugees were then debriefed by SADF specialists and the full extent of Cuban involvement was revealed. In the meantime, the SADF had been deployed in large numbers along the border and were most interested in one strategic key location, the water scheme on the Rokana River. Ironically, this is where the border war would start and end 23 years later in 1989 when the final shots were fired. The South Africans were concerned about the Rokana scheme, which was a hydroelectric joint project they'd worked on with the Portuguese for many years. The generator had been built on the southwest African side and a large barrage and pumping station was based 25 kilometers inside Angola. This regulated the flow of water into the generator's turbines and also pumped water directly to Avambaland along a 300-kilometer network of canals. This was clearly one of the important points to attack if you were Swapo and the SADF needed to act. Pretoria's cabinet, as I mentioned last week, was divided about what to do. General Constant Fulun was constantly pressing for escalated military action, and yet B.J. Forster, the Prime Minister, was trying to continue detente policy with African states. Any South African aggression would damage his African PR campaign. And these had showed signs of success, because countries like Zaire, Kenya and Guinea worried about the Cold War forces tinkering with their newly found independence. Eventually, 
the threat posed by SWAPO and its armed wing plan would cause the diplomacy to fail. Bureau of State Security Head General Hendrik van der Bach felt that securing the southwest African border but not committing troops on the ground in Angola was sufficient. General Constant Fulun wrote to P.W. Boerter then saying that van der Bach believed the Angolan war could be withstood in the south purely using political leverage. The hawks in the South African government believed the opposite. It's fascinating to see how these men were going to eventually push the region into an even more violent conflagration with their view that extreme violence against the threat was a form of political solution. As we'll hear, the political leadership, by being divided, ended up launching a long war without a proper understanding of what the political goal was other than the survival of the national party and therefore apartheid. Survival is not a military strategy. It's a short-term tactic. For many strategic thinkers inside the army, they understood that a full-blown war against an enemy intent on destroying your nation-state was not what was going on. What they were faced with was really a low-intensity war, where the one army had the overwhelming support of the local people and the other had overwhelming power. By the time I entered the SADF in 1981, the confusion about what exactly we were up to had reached fever pitch. The army would become one of the most respected and highly trained in the world, and yet was deformed by political leadership which appeared to be based on one intrinsic value. The survival of white minority power in an African state even as black troops fought and died for this power in Angola and Southwest Africa. The ancestors of many of the SADF officer corps that I fought with had fought the British and they knew what happened when a highly motivated guerrilla force representing the local population fought a long war against a conventional foreign army. In the end, the conventional foreign army may win the battles, but they inevitably lose the war. The Russians found this out in Afghanistan, the Americans in Vietnam, the Portuguese in Angola and Mozambique. The British found this to be true in the 1700s during the American War of Independence. The Germans discovered this in Russia, and so on, and so on. It's interesting because the South African Defence Force Hawks would turn themselves into the British Army, fighting a virtually invisible guerrilla movement as a highly visible logistical regional superpower in a role reversal 70 years after the Boer War. These Hawks in 1975 also appear to forget the basic rules preached by Clausewitz. War is merely politics by the means. It is not a means to an end itself. Those who want to fight for fighting's sake have a very short shelf life. Usually their lives end with a 5.56mm round, 81mm mortar shrapnel, a triple cheese tank mine, a rocket-propelled grenade launcher. They are mercenaries and make money from death, but politically they are irrelevant in the long term. So when Constant Fulun wrote his letter to B.W. Boerter, he referred to boss commander Van den Berg, who opposed the idea of invading Angola, saying, He says there are no Swapo terrorists in Angola. This differs from our opinion. Of course, Fulun was 100% accurate about the fact that Swapo bases had already been set up in southern Angola. So, by early 1975, Angola had been plunged into a civil war and Pretoria was going to make the most of the chaos. At least, that was the narrative of the time when the doors closed behind the cabinet in Pretoria. The view was Swapo would continue to fight as long as South Africa, in Boerter's words, sat idle. After 1948, the nationalists strove to correct what they saw was a grave injustice against Afrikaans-speaking people of South Africa who had been oppressed by the English. Now they faced another enemy, communism, 
which sought to introduce black majority rule which the hardliners could never accept. As long as the region remained unstable, South Africa could continue to avoid being the target for an inevitable race-based concerted effort. This may create a diplomatic opening, as the OAU and others would hopefully pressurize the Angolans and sue for peace. Then Swapo would lose its bases in the south, and somehow Pretoria would maintain control over southwest Africa. The Cubans were already in Angola, despite protestations by Fidel Castro and others that they only arrived after the coming South African invasion in something called Operation Savannah. The Cubans were busy exporting revolution to Latin America, Africa and even Asia, having secured their own communist state virtually on the border with America. In 1975, this was no idle threat. Havana and Moscow were intent on introducing their brand of Marxism to the newly independent post-colonial states of Africa and actually at times competed with the Chinese, let alone the Americans. This was an ideological tussle imbued with the kind of motherland nationalism that dominated every discourse in politics. The Americans were paranoid about this, of course, so they naturally gravitated to support South Africa. Anyone who is an enemy of my enemy is theoretically my friend, even those who support apartheid. As we know, this self-serving logic gets countries in big trouble. Witness what happened with the American support of the Taliban against the Russians after the invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, for example. It's been America's longest ever war, and those linked to the Taliban eventually flattened the Twin Towers in New York in 2001, killing more Americans than those who died in Pearl Harbor. A war launched in a distant land eventually comes home to roost, does it not? So the South Africans saw UNITA as the one independence movement in Angola they could work with. The others were out of the question. Castro and the Russians supported MPLA, who were avowed communists, and the FNLA was led by a maniac called Roberto. The SADF began drawing up plans to assist UNITA, which is now being squeezed by the MPLA and its vast resources of Russian and Cuban arms and technical advisors. On the 24th of September 1975, the four-phase plan was handed to Defence Minister B.W. Buerta. This was a plan that was to become known as Operation Savannah. The first phase would be assistance offered to what was considered to be the anti-Marxist movements of Angola in terms of battle training, logistics and intelligence gathering. This, of course, now meant UNITA. The second phase was to stop further advances by what they referred to as the enemy, which ostensibly meant Swapo, but implied the MPLA as well. The third phase was to recapture all the areas occupied by the MPLA and the Cubans who were pushing inexorably southward. The fourth was an eye-opener to capture all of southern Angola's harbours. Army Chief Magnus Malan was told to focus on Swapo, which was now swarming over south of Angola. Malan would be able to draw on a total of 3,000 men and 600 vehicles to achieve his aim. In his book, The SADF and the Border War, Leopold Skoltz writes that there was a political aim, although it appeared to have been miscommunicated to SADF officer corps, as you're going to hear. The South African government believed the SADF action would apply pressure on the Organization of African Unity to intervene in Angola and help facilitate the government of national unity, as the Olvo Agreement stipulated. Furthermore, and this is where you have to suspend belief, by some miracle, South Africa's direct military support in the form of men and vehicles inside Angola would actually be hidden. It would be secret. When you assess this naive belief, it becomes very clear that the planners were really most interested in keeping such an operation secret from their own people. 
The nationalists controlled the broadcast mediums inside South Africa. There was no independent radio journalism. It was all run by the SABC. The independent media was English-speaking print, so the nationalists could very easily call them traitors or reject their reporting as biased against the Boer folk. They were liberals. They were tacitly the descendants of the Eightlanders who'd fought the Boers and were thought of as the internal enemy despite the colour of their skin. So, it was easy for the nationalists to convince the folk that the English newspapers like the Rand Daily Mail and the Star were selling out to communism and lying. Worse, back in 1975, the actual aims of this four-phase plan were not succinctly nor properly communicated to any of the frontline commanders. While the SADF was still going through its modernization process, the political commissars, the PW Butters, if you like, were constantly referring to a need-to-know basis. Later, Jan Breitenbach, who headed up the famous 3-2 battalion, said of this coming assault that We never really knew whether we were to take over the potential Swapo guerrilla base area by destroying the guerrillas already in residence there, capture as much of Angola as possible, attack and take over Luanda, and install Savimbi or whatever. Or whatever. Bradenbach also said, As combat soldiers, we hardly knew what the hell was going on and where we were going to. But we went nonetheless. With that, we need to halt and secure the perimeter. Next episode, you'll hear how the SADF launched Operation Savannah and how the Cubans responded. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. You can also send me a note through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Mm-hmm.